Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director at ECFR, and I've seized control of this podcast while Mark Leonard is on sabbatical, and uh, we'll see if I relinquish it. Um, But uh, to a certain degree, that's up to you, so I hope you like it. Uh, This week's podcast will be all about Russian politics. Uh, in the West, I think they're, they're, the perceptions of what's happening in Russia vary quite a bit uh, between a nation that is sort of indifferent to the war being waged next door to one that is uh, quite supportive of that war and quite supportive of the regime. But I think it's actually quite difficult from our perspective in the West to really distinguish between these uh, hypotheses these days because for, there's been a very sharp decrease in on-the-ground reporting and on interactions between uh, Russia and the West at pretty much all levels from civil society on up since the February 2022 all-out invasion of Ukraine. And that means that, in my view, that the Russia, Russia has rarely been as poorly understood as it is today. And I think one could make the argument that it's always been poorly understood. So uh, the question that we're going to try to understand now is, is what is happening in Russia? How do the Russian elites and the Russian and the, and the public really see the war in Ukraine? How long will uh, the Russian regime be able to sustain the war effort while keeping public dissent in check? Uh, and is Putin's grip on power really solid? Uh, So we luckily, and I think almost uniquely, have an all-star cast to discuss this question. Um, First is uh, Valerie Hopkins. Um, Valerie is an international correspondent for the New York Times covering the war in Ukraine, as well as in Russia and the countries of the former Soviet Union. And she um, is one of the few Western reporters that uh, still spends time in Russia. And she, in fact, just returned from there on Saturday. So I think her perspective will be quite useful. And then to complement her, just across the border from Russia, we have Kadri Leek, who is in... You're in Estonia right now, Kadri, is that right? Yeah. Um, Kadri is in Estonia, uh, so she can see Russia from her uh, front yard. Uh, and... Uh, she has been um, looking into Russia from that near proximity for the last two years and has a lot of interesting insights and questions on what's happening there. Um, so, Valerie, uh, let's start with you. Well, first, both welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining. Uh, Valerie, let's start with you. You just got back from Moscow. What is what is life like there? How are How would you describe the mood in the country and particularly with regard to the war? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It's really an honor to be on the podcast and to be in company with Katri, whose work I've been reading um, and whose appearances on this podcast I've been listening to for for many years. So, um, you know, in Moscow, it can feel quite often very, very surreal. Um, You know, new luxury restaurants are opening up all the time. there's tons and tons of traffic. The first snow is falling. It's beautiful. And um, 
you know, the shopping centers are still full. People are buying Christmas presents. People are gearing up for the very Russian um, tradition of corporative, all the big uh, pre, all the big holiday parties um, that companies normally throw. Um, and unlike in other cities, it's um, in the very center, you don't see a lot of uh, military recruitment. The, the only thing you really see, I think, uh, in Moscow that reminds you that the war is even going on are uh, billboards, um, whether they're billboards saying, come and join your own. So they're recruiting for the, for the military or they're advertising um incredibly lucrative contracts to join the army on a contract, or they are um, praising uh, soldiers taking part in what uh, the Russian government calls a special military operation. But by and large, you know, it's, it's, it's been pretty easy for many Russians to tune it out. You know, the, the drone strikes that we saw over the over the summer have largely subsided you know in august uh there was a period when you know the airport was closed down the main airport some of the main airports were shut down for a couple hours a night uh, because of drone strikes there were you know drones hitting buildings in the uh moscow city area which is the kind of wannabe financial district uh in moscow um and that has at least for the time being subsided that's not to say that that it's not on people's minds, but for those that that are keen to ignore it, it's much easier to ignore it there than and 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 in in many of the larger cities than it is in smaller communities and and villages. And I recently, and maybe we can get into it a bit later, but I um, I attended recently a funeral for a mobilized soldier uh, in a in a former collective farm in a village about three hours outside of Samara. And that was um, the first time that I could feel the full thrust uh, of, of the war coming to bear in, in Russia, compared with, you know, if you travel to Ukraine, it's it's right in front of you. It's everywhere. You know, the second you get off at the train station in Kiev, you see amputees, you see soldiers. Um, and, and that's it's very different uh, from that. In, in That's Russia. interesting. So there's a bit of a dissociation from the war. Would you say that people think that they're winning or... Uh, do they have a theory of victory or do they just are they so divorced from it that they don't even have an opinion on that question? Um, I think I mean, I think that, first of all, there are probably a lot of Russians that don't see even a military victory uh, in this war as, as a win. Uh, there are some. Maybe they're not a majority. Um, I think there are many others who who see that time is currently on, on Putin's side and, and on the Russian side. And quite frankly, there are very, very, very many um, who have said, who have watched the West resp West's response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th and who have watched, you know, um, the way that, um, that the West and especially America have been funding and supporting Israel on this and have been you know, raising their arms to shrug at what they see as a big perceived double standard, which I do think has um, emboldened a lot of Russians, some who might have been on the fence and some who, um, you know, who have who who were waiting and, and always searching for for ways to point the finger at Washington for for bearing culpability um, and for for encouraging violence, shall we say, you know, if, if these are the Russians who think that the West baited uh, Putin into the full scale invasion, you know, this this is this is some this is another argument that they use to say, look at America, you know, look what they're doing and why have they responded um, 
by telling Israel to go ahead uh, while Putin, you know, while they've completely cut us off from the rest of the, from the, from the West and sought to cut us off from the West of all. This is obviously like way too big of a topic for 30 minutes. Um, but I just want to say that that's, that's the view that's, <laughs> that's that I, I heard it a lot in Moscow, you know, from taxi drivers, from ordinary people, from people in the village, everyone is watching this war and, um, and, and most Russians have seen, have, do see a double standard. Yeah, I think everybody sees a double standard. The question, what's odd to me is maybe why they care that there's a double standard. I thought they already thought there were double standards. Um, that's been Russian rhetoric for well, a generation. Absolutely. But I think this is something that they, that they feel they can point to right point. now. Yeah, yeah. It's always the most recent double standard that matters, I suppose. Uh, Kadri, um, I'd be interested in getting, frankly, your reaction to any of that, but particularly this idea that uh, the, 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 the question of the stability of the Russian regime, I mean, it, 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 you know, everybody got quite excited when there was this Prigozhin mutiny a few months ago, all that seems to have subsided. Valerie just described uh, a Russian public, which is, you know, certainly not a problem. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe actually genuinely supportive of, uh, of what, of what the Russian regime is doing in Ukraine. Do you, you see it any differently? Are there when you talk to people in the elite, are they worried about the Russian public? Are they worried about domestic politics? Yeah. Um, thanks also for reminding me to the podcast. Pleasure to be together with a Moscow correspondent. I used to be that at the turn of the century, living opposite the Kremlin in the house on the embankment, where I literally could see Kremlin from my windows. <laughs> from Estonia, it's not quite this visible as you, Jeremy, made us think. Oh, okay. That's just my American concept of space, but okay. <laughs> For me, it is, of course, hard to make sense of the moods in Moscow from distance. Uh, I, I really regret that I haven't had opportunity to visit Moscow ever since the war started uh, even if you don't meet too many people, something in the air on the streets tells you things about mood in Moscow. But my observations from distance, I mean, I watched carefully the Valdai uh, uh, meeting with, with Putin, and I think he was quite confident. He seemed quite, quite relaxed in, in contrast, for instance, to the last year's meeting where it was sort of certain sharpness, certain edge to his performance and his body language. Uh, this year, it was all a, a lot more relaxed, uh, joking, uh, talking about recent that, you know, sense of urgency that one sometimes senses in him had, had gone out. I don't know if... If Moscow has a clear theory of, of victory, um, probably not. When it comes to Putin, I think actually it's quite characteristic of him not to have it. Uh, I mean, his, his way of handling these things is take one step at a time, see what works, see what not, think of next step. He doesn't usually have sort of long-term strategic plans. He's uh, very good at waiting and seizing his chance when he sees and recognizes. He would make an excellent ECFR policy fellow. <laughs> Absolutely. 
though I yeah, I'm I'm afraid that sanctions probably don't allow him to work in the European Union. That's yeah, probably. that's probably the main reason why it won't happen. Uh, so look, I mean, I, I, this is all quite interesting, and but you know, it, I think there's a sort of I always say a friend of mine used to say that one of the myths that the West has about Russia under the Putin regime and before in the, in the Soviet Union was that it didn't have domestic politics, that it was an authoritarian state. And so there were no domestic politics associated with it. Um, but that, in fact, Russian domestic politics are quite different than Western ones, somewhat harder to discern, but they're there. So I guess maybe in the context of um, maybe our listeners don't know because it hasn't really been talked about a lot, but there's a presidential election next year in Russia. Um, uh, I feel reasonably confident in predicting the outcome. I think it will be Vladimir Putin, but has the, what are the domestic politics around the, around the presidential election in Russia? Has it affected Russian policy, particularly with regard to the war? But, but maybe, I mean, for you, Valerie, how does that play in the street? Is the do, can you detect that the government is worried about? I, th- I think one thing that's been that's been you know it's first of all it's very interesting that Putin still has not officially declared his candidacy, right? So I think we're going to see a pretty short, relatively short uh, campaign period, and what everybody's watching for now is to see you know how much, if very much at all, uh, this war will figure into the campaign. I think a lot of uh, analysts and pundits are sort of predicting that to the degree that there will be a campaign, you know, the war will not take a front seat uh, position, which which many people read. I'm really interested in what Kadri thinks about this, because I think many people read that as some sort of low-level acknowledgement uh, that the war is actually not quite as popular uh, with a broad public as as the government would like uh, people to believe. Um, even if, you know, even if some of those people are people who say, yeah, we need to win, otherwise it's going to bring shame on us and, and stuff like that. Many of them, I do think, probably wish it hadn't started. And, and that, um, I think, squares with the experience that I had uh, reporting in five different cities uh, over the past month in Russia, where many people sort of said, yeah, we hope this really ends as soon as possible, preferably, obviously, with our victory, but but not necessarily. Um, I think that... <clears throat> I think that many people, uh, how else it manifests among, you know, ordinary Russians, I think it's many people expect, for instance, they see that, 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 uh, many Russians are dying on the battlefield, that even if not a lot of territory is being taken, and even if the Ukrainians, um, you know, didn't, um, let's say, meet the expectations that they set by their successful, very successful counteroffensive last year, uh, you know, they, that people know that there might not be any, any wider mobilization efforts um, officially declared uh, until next year. But basically the way it, I think the way it manifests among a lot of ordinary people is this idea that, um, that they can sit tight until March, but after that, their future is a big question mark and it's going to be very hard for them to plan. So I think what, what what also we'll be watching for is to see just how many and uh, which uh, candidates will be allowed to run in the opposition. Um, you know, there has been there have been some some murmurs and uh, several people have have publicly declared, but it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, whether they'll be able to gather enough signatures um, and whether what kind of campaigns they will really mount. What can we read into that? I mean, what what will it 
what will it tell us about which opposition candidates are allowed to run? Well, I think it'll tell us just, I mean, it'll it'll give a, a sign of, of how secure uh, Putin and the people in the Kremlin are about victory if they will allow someone else to run. But I would actually defer to, to Kadri on this one. I think she, you know, being inside Moscow doesn't give me doesn't give me a uh, tremendous insight into um, into into criminalized because it's very difficult to to speak to anyone uh, at least for me um, someone who's only worked uh, in Russia since 2021 um, I don't have a lot of access to to elites um, and I've not set foot uh, into the Kremlin or really meant any ministries for official meetings so well, for the record, I will say that I think there's tremendous value from both of your perspectives and insights, so I don't think we need to figure out which one has more. Um, uh, Kadri, I'd really be interested in your in your views on the election question and, and maybe particularly on this mobilization issue. Um, uh, Valerie mentioned that there won't be mobilization or people feel, feel, feel quite certain that there won't be mobilization before the election. But there may be afterwards. Why is that? And I mean, well, do you agree? And why is that if you do? Well, I think mobilization is undoubtedly an unpopular thing. So the Kremlin has all incentives to postpone it until after the elections. Um, question is whether they need... If the election is a foregone conclusion, what's the difference whether it's unpopular? Uh, well, uh, I think they are still not... They are never completely sure. And and the elections are always, even if you know, even if you seemingly have everything under control, unexpected things can happen. Putin experienced that back in 2011, when all of a sudden, and he was really secure about his position, but all of a sudden, protests erupted. Later on, he has taken better care to have political landscape under control. But the situation like now, when the population really loses out. Uh, on, on multiple fronts, n- not least when it comes to mobilization and losing their lives, I think it, it must make them cautious. Mm. Secondly, I think they also are interested in, in turnout. Uh, the Kremlin probably would want to have proper turnout and could share off a vote going to Putin. Uh, that is what you know opposition or people who oppose the war um, are trying to decide when devising their strategy. So what's, if, if you oppose everything that is happening, what should you do? Should you go and vote against Putin or should you uh, boycott the elections entirely? To me, it was interesting to see that these debates are not only happening among exiled position, opposition leaders or, or jailed, but also among ordinary people in Russia. I have been trying to look at some social media channels where sort of conversation, intra-Russian conversation is happening among really people scattered all over Russia. Uh, I won't name them because first, you wouldn't know their names. uh, Secondly, they might not want excessive attention from the West. But but these are the debates uh, among Greece people who hate the war, but who have stayed in Russia and and, and try to get by and try to somehow express their political uh, position. So I think Kremlin has all the incentives to try to make sure the turnout is is also big. As to the popularity of the war, I think actually the social group 
among whom the war is least popular are exactly Russian elites. I mean, what I'm picking up from myself or via people who speak to people, um, they hate it. They think it has been a huge mistake. At the same time, they cannot see a way out without winning. That's the sort of uh, predominant uh, statement. It was a huge mistake, but now we only have to win it because there is no other way out. Um, and you can understand it because many of these people um, will have a lot to lose in um, in post-Putin Russia or in, in, in a Russia that has lost the war. And there is no way for Russia to get back to the position it had before the war, you know, early February 2022. I would say that that was really a good time for Russia. It uh, it was doing very well in terms of, of foreign policy and, and most things. Um, but whatever happens to a war, they cannot, you know, just go back there because there would be sanctions, demands for reparations, etc. As to population's positions, I mean, I just saw a paper by a... Um, Denis Volkov and Andrei Kolesnikov, who claim that Russians, many Russians oppose the way the war is being uh, fought, but, but not, they do not oppose the war as such. I fear there is a, certainly more than a grain of truth to it, but, but probably is positioned by many people. But also, my own stuff, expeditions into Russian language, media, social media networks, show that there are surprisingly many really, you know, simple people, so to say, who oppose the war. So I also wonder, numbers don't give you a full story. It also depends on what's in the agenda and who speaks up. So, you know, if a page is turned, if atmosphere changes, then you could suddenly have people speaking out whose views are, are quite different. And and that would then again have effect also to, to other people. So, you know, these things are not so set in stone. Uh, Valerie, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I just I just wanna to to agree and and add my own uh two cents, which is that I think, you know, right now there is very much the feeling, I think, in Russia uh, that time is on Putin's side, you know, that if he can just wait until, you know, the 2024 presidential elections in the U.S., um, you know, wait for for Europe to continue or the transatlantic alliance anyway, to continue to show uh, a bit of Ukraine fatigue and that it's flagging uh, that, you know, victory will will be assured. But but I think th- that that there's not there is not actually too much time is not on Putin's side beyond far much beyond that because I do think that slowly but surely um, this war is trickling into more and more families more and more households from the constant complaints I hear about inflation to even you know. Um, I interviewed the mother of, of a, a different mobilized soldier um, from Toliati, who whose son was killed. Uh, they've still never found the body. And, you know, he's not been recognized as dead, um, which both means, you know, she hasn't been able to bury him, which is, I think, her, her biggest gripe. But also uh, the family is not entitled to the 
55,000 plus uh, payment that the Russian state is is making to families of deceased. And and what she said was, you know, I was never very political. Um, you know, when the war started, I didn't pay a lot of attention. And now I hate the people who are making the decisions in the Kremlin with every fiber in my body. And I think, you know, we're starting to see a little bit more of that frustration and anger bubbling up. You know, we've seen um, uh, protests of mother, mothers and wives of mobilized bubbling up in Moscow, in Novosibirsk, in, in a number of other cities. You know, again, it's it's what Katri said. Not all of them are are saying that they are totally against the war, but they're against the way it's being waged. They want to see their loved ones, you know, who've now been mobilized for more than a year, get to come home and take a break and other people um, continue fighting. So, so I do think, um, I do think that, that there is a lot of uh, frustration, whether it's, it's at the, at the war itself. But if I'm hearing you right, this is a, this is a sort of 2025 thing more than a 2024 thing. This is something that is maybe at, at the beginning stages of brewing, but hasn't really uh, bubbled up more. I mean, if you think about it, the fact that there's been by some estimates, 300,000 casualties, uh, which is, you know, um, six times what the United States experienced in the Vietnam War. Uh, there, it's quite extraordinary how little of this there has been. I, I My sense uh, from the time that I've spent in Russia now is that a lot of that is due to the fact that uh, larger cities, more affluent communities are are largely being spared and can largely continue living as normal. The economy is not doing as bad as everyone expected. A lot of that is because the Russian government has just raided uh, Western companies or forced those leaving to pay, you know, to sell at a 50% discount with a 15%, you know, do, uh, semi-optional donation, right? So the, the economy is still doing okay. And where the where you really feel the war is is in the smaller towns and communities. You know, I went to a funeral in the Samara region, and every guest at the funeral told the mothers and the sisters of the deceased. You know, my cousin also died. My brother also died. My relative. You know, ten people are missing from our village. Um, and these are these are small places, but they're places that are not particularly organized and not uh, people who have a lot of experience with engaging in politics or, or mobilizing or, or feeling particularly tapped into a wider community. I mean, uh, some of the people at the funeral had never been to Moscow um, or on a plane. Um, so, so I think these are the type of people um, who are fighting the war and, and bearing the, the brunt of at least the, the human toll. Um, but, but it's going to take a long time for them to mobilize. But I think as Kadri said, if a page is turned, if there is some, kind of spark. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's not going to be next year or, you know, until 2025, but, but there, I think there, that explains there, why the death benefit is so large too. Yes. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, who feel that, um, who feel that that is, that that's helping because people feel taken care of, uh, by the state, even if they've lost their, their loved ones. Kadri, one, one final question for you that, that keys off of something that Valerie said, the, the U.S. presidential election, um, she said that a lot of people in Moscow are expecting, are, are sort of waiting for that to see what the next steps was. I think I think that's what you said, Valerie. I'm not mischaracterizing you. More uh, like the Kremlin, but yes, the elites. I think yeah. The elites are. Is it is that your perception too? And what and why are they waiting? And what are they? What what would they think they might do afterwards? I think so. I think the assumption is that um, 
if 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 Donald Trump wins, then that could have some advantages to the Kremlin. I don't think they expect him to be you know, outright friendly uh, the way they expected. Last time he won, they he have experienced Donald Trump. You know that chaos is his middle name, and uh, and you can never be sure. But I think they have all the reasons to expect that Trump presidency will split the Western alliance, uh, Western coordination on sanctions or support to Ukraine uh, will weaken. Uh, well, aid packages to Ukraine uh, will probably no longer be approved, at least by America. So they have things to gain. There is a risk there, though, that um, that Trump, if Trump doesn't win and they wait for the 2024 election and the public mood is going as Valerie described, they're going to have a big problem in 2025 because they're going to have Biden uh, in office stronger than ever. They're going to have a weak war effort and the U- and Western production is going to be coming online right around that time. So they're going to be able to increase assistance to Ukraine. So is there, I guess from either of you, thinking about that problem? I guess you said they don't do long-term thinking, so I that maybe... Yeah, and my impression is that Putin, at least, has made, has convinced himself that the Western system is collapsing, that, you know, the West is not just overstretched, but also over-ideologist uh, and, and, you know, the world that majority that Putin keeps talking about all the time, that the world majority is fed up of, of Western hegemonism, of the West imposing its own uh, standards in trade, politics, or sexual life, etc., uh, etc. Et I mean, it's to us it sounds a caricature, but Putin keeps presenting that caricature speech after speech. I, I, I think he believes it. Um, and as actually one smart Western analyst put it, um, even if Biden wins, that will be viewed by many people, and not just in Russia, but also in the West, the way Boris Yeltsin election victory in 1996 was viewed. You know, OK, well, that's it for now. But, but what comes after? Right. Uh, so. All right. Well, it's good to know they underestimate us, too. Uh, but just uh, uh, one more one beat on that is, as I think this is also uh, part of the reason why uh, the Kremlin's end goals and and war official, you know, wish list um, is still so unclearly defined, which which gives the Kremlin a lot of wiggle room whenever uh, they feel ready to come to the table. Okay, I think we could talk about this for a lot longer, but unfortunately, uh, our time has come to an end. There is one thing left to do on this podcast, however, and that is our bookshelf section. I'm going to ask each of you to recommend something to our listeners. Um, so let's start with you, Kadri. What, what can you recommend? Yeah, I, um, I can recommend a book um, that might not be so easily accessible to our readers, actually, because it's in Russian. Uh, these are memoirs by... Uh, <clears throat> Russian uh, ambassador um, uh, Anatoly Adamishin. It's titled in different years, Vraznya Gode. I um, I have had it for a long time. Um, Adamishin for a while really seemed to emerge as the wise old man of, of of Russian diplomacy. Now he has become more quiet, which is not surprising. Many quite 
many um, wise Russians are quite quiet in, in these days. Uh, but yeah, I have a book since I paid him a visit in, in early 2019. I hadn't properly read it, only skimmed. And now actually I'm, I'm working on a paper on, on Russia and the global majority. And Adamishin has at one time served in Angola. So I opened it to read about uh, Russia's relations with Africa in historical context. And uh, it's good. Anyone who likes to think about Russian foreign policy should have have it in their reading list, if if not in sort of first priority order. Okay, I'll open my depot. Valerie, what's on your bookshelf? I have actually belatedly been reading uh, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky and the Path to Russians, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine by a Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar, who I don't know if you've read the book, Kadri, or seem smiling, but uh, he, in a very readable, uh, journalistic manner, actually unpacks quite a lot of the myths. I hear from a lot of uh, American and Western policymakers, you know, that, oh, Ukraine has always been so, so close to Russia, Crimea has always been Russian, et cetera. And he kind of unpacks a lot of myths um, uh, and and historiography in a very, and actually entertaining way, you know, going back to the 1600s and straight straight up into to the modern day. Uh, it's very readable and and funny. And I highly recommend it, especially to a lot of policymakers um, in Washington who who I hear um, <clears throat> sometimes erroneously talking about the long term uh, and unbreakable connection, I think, between between Ukraine and Russia. So here's a Russian journalist uh, providing proof of, of the contrary. Well, that's a good segue to my um, bookshelf selection this week, because um I've noticed that pretty much every European war starts around the 16th century. Um, and so what I would like to recommend is a, is a book that has become a podcast series by one of our former colleagues, called, uh, Nick Whitney, and it's called All You Need to Know About European History. And it is essentially a, sh- a relatively short and readable um, uh, or listenable, depending on how you take it in, uh, history of Europe dating back yeah. to the, I think to the, um, to Charlemagne. Uh, and so, uh, I would highly recommend it. Nick recorded it himself. So you can hear, uh, the great story of European history in the sonorous tones of Nick Whitney's wonderful accent. So I would, uh, recommend it to everybody. Uh, okay. Um, we will put a link uh, to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know by writing about it on our social media page or ours. And if you would like to enable my coup of this podcast, uh, hopefully give us a good rating, maybe a five-star rating. I don't know if six stars is possible, but I think that that would, uh, that would uh, help the takeover. And review it on whichever platform you use to down this, download this podcast. But for now, uh, from Valerie Kadri and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Maria Faro Saratz. <laughs>